0: Well, welcome everybody. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the Director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And tonight we're going to have the first of a series of lectures this academic year on the theme of war and peace, or possibly, if you like, militarism and pacifism. And I think our idea is that radicals and progressives of all sorts, whether they be liberals or socialists, feminists or um, peace activists, have long um, sought to oppose militarism in all its forms. And yet at many times, uh, progressives have also recognised, or meant some of them have recognised, that it's been important to resort to arms And so we're hoping to use the public interest that's accompanying the centenary of the First World War to have a debate about what these progressive uh, positions meant and what they should mean today and what their ongoing impact is. And it's against that background that I'm totally pleased to invite our first speaker in this series, Professor Kimberly Hutchins, Now, Professor Hutchins, as many of you will know, is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University in London, and she's taught at a number of universities in the United Kingdom, including, of course, for quite some time here at the LSE. And she's published a series of important works, broadly in the area of moral and political theory. Um, Amongst her seven books and numerous articles are works on Kant, on the ethics and theory of international relations, on Hegel and feminism, and on time and world politics. And she's recently been working on a research project about the relationship between politics and violence, And I think it's on that work that she's going to draw, at least in part, in her lecture today. Well, um, Professor Hutchins is going to speak for you know about 50 minutes, and after that we're going to have uh, a good chunk of time for questions and discussion about half an hour. So um, can I just start by asking you to join me in welcoming our speaker,
1: Professor Kimberly Hutchins. Thank you very much, Robin. That's a lovely uh, introduction, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, it's a great pleasure always to be at the uh, LSC, and it's also a privilege, I think, to participate in this particular series, which uh, speaks to uh, many of the uh, issues that I'm currently interested in in, in my work. Um, okay, I just want to check, actually, that the PowerPoint is uh, working. just. <laughs> Somebody's pointing at me. <laughs> Sorry, I should have checked this before we started. So this thing here. <laughs> oh it's under there. Just this one here. Okay. Okay, great. Okay, so The centenary of World War I has demonstrated just how powerful is the grip of this particular war on the contemporary imagination of people in countries such as the UK. At an elite level, military, political, religious, academic figures reinforce the importance of the memory of this war, which in some ways stands in for all wars, because of what it tells us about the pity and the horror of of war, because it informs our thinking about things like our current contract with military personnel. At a mundane level, millions of people go to see the ceramic poppies at the Tower of London. Hundreds of thousands to the battlefields of Flanders. Thousands more feel the grip of this war through tracing back family histories and celebrating as well as mourning connection with those that died. There's a great pathos and beauty, as well as sadness, in our reliving of this war. And there's no question that our reliving of it is fundamentally connected to many of the things we still take for granted about war and what it means, including what it means morally. I suggest that the key moral message from contemporary, from the contemporary obsession of this particular post-imperial country with the mass slaughter of 1914 to 18 is that war is hell, that militarism is wrong, but that war is sometimes necessary for justice, can be justly fought, and that those that die in military service have a certain sacrosanct status. This moralised imaginary dominates the media in the week of Armistice Day. It's an imaginary that takes war very seriously, that speaks movingly of the costs and pains of war, that embraces the solemn ceremonies of the cenotaph, yet also categorises different deaths and harms in different ways, including, for example, permitting us to speak of 453 deaths of British servicemen and women in Afghanistan as if that were the sum total of deaths, and that these were the only deaths to be mourned. When war is understood in this way, it doesn't seem odd that we put up our monuments only to some of those that died, and always to those that die rather than to those that kill. This is a moral imaginary premised on the possibility of drawing distinctions between good and bad war. And it's inherently linked to just war thinking, which traditionally draws boundaries between good and bad reasons for going to war known technically as ad bellum justice, justice in the course of going to war, and good and bad ways of fighting wars, known as in bello justice, justice in the ways in which you fight or carry out your wars. Just war theory has been periodically revived in response to different wars over the past hundred years, perhaps most famously by Michael Waltz's response to the Vietnam War in his book Just and Unjust Wars, which was first published in 1977. In this lecture, my discussion of just war draws on its most recent reincarnation in moral philosophy in the form of cosmopolitan just war theory in the wake of post-Cold War conflicts. But in this lecture also, I want to connect us to a different strain of moral imagination in relation to war, an alternative way of thinking that can also be traced back historically to responses to World War I, and for a short while became a significant, if never, never predominant, strain in thinking about the morality of war in what we now tend to refer to as the interwar period in the UK and elsewhere. I mean pacifism, and in particular feminist pacifist thinking. Within the framework of just war theory, pacifism is as morally stupid as its evil twin militarism. It's associated with the attitude of passivity in the face of evil. In what follows, my aim is to challenge this claim as it is reproduced in recent cosmopolitan just war theory. I will argue that cosmopolitan just war thinking is premised on a deep misunderstanding of the nature of war and of the meaning of moral intelligence, and that feminist pacifist arguments from 1914 to the present day offer a much more persuasive understanding of war, the moral challenges it poses and the route to a morally intelligent engagement with those challenges. Cosmopolitan just war theory takes its moral starting point from the priority of individual human rights and the idea of a fundamental continuity between the morality that governs the infliction of harm, especially killing in war, and the morality that governs the infliction of harm in other kinds of contexts. I'm going to use Jeff McMahon probably the most influential contemporary proponent of this kind of just war theory as the exemplary uh, person for this position. And I'll begin by briefly setting out the position of cosmopolitan just war theory on the meaning of war and the nature of moral stupidity about war and how that moral stupidity is to be avoided. Okay, very crudely speaking, the way to avoid moral stupidity... According to cosmopolitan just war theory, when it comes to war is to do your homework rather better, as you can see from the quotation there. McMahon argues that philosophers have largely failed to provide appropriate moral knowledge about war because they have assumed that moral standards in warfare are distinct from those governing conduct in other aspects of social and political life. The main reason for this perceived difference has been the allocation of intrinsic moral value to political communities and the consequent subsumption of the rights of individuals under the rights of collectives. For cosmopolitans this is to make a serious moral mistake because it fails to treat the individual as the primary unit of moral concern and overturns widely shared moral intuitions about the principles that should regulate the harming and killing of individuals. From the cosmopolitan point of view, the moral intuitions reflected in the legal regulation of harm and killing outside of the context of war provide the appropriate touchstone for thinking about killing within the context of war. The exemplary cases of where killing or harm may be justified are those of self and other defence on the part of the innocent victim, in which it's normally expected that there are no alternative ways of saving the innocent and that the target has rendered him or herself liable to be killed by posing an unjustified lethal threat to the innocent. Thus, as McMahon points out, although we see the policeman as justified in killing a murderous attacker in circumstances in which there are no other ways of protecting the innocent, we would not say that the murderous attacker has a right to kill the policeman or that the policeman is liable to be killed because of his threat to the murderous attacker. In this respect, the implications of cosmopolitan just war theory in terms of the practice of political and military actors are in some ways paradoxical. On the one hand, they suggest that very few actual wars on either side could confidently be counted as just in cosmopolitan terms. Not many actual conflicts replicate the certainties of the policeman versus the murderer-attacker scenario. On the other hand, if there are cases where these requirements are met, and as we know, some contemporary conflicts have been represented in this way, at least some of the implications of cosmopolitan thinking for just belligerents, those in the equivalent position to the policeman, are actually very permissive in terms of what they can do, in particular when it comes to those in the position of the murderous attacker, unjust combatants. So there's a deep asymmetry between just and unjust combatants in cosmopolitan just war thinking. For cosmopolitanism, intention is crucial to the objective rightness or wrongness of an act, and therefore to the degree of an agent's culpability. Given the inevitability of foreseeable, even if unintended harm to the innocent, involved in any modern war, McMahon and others like him argue that justification must therefore in some sense be able to override liability in contemporary warfare. There must be wars that are morally necessary or imperative to fight regardless of the fact that we're going to end up killing people who do not, in some sense, render themselves liable to be killed. So how do we work out whether a war is morally necessary or imperative to fight? Most importantly, this requires the moral knowledge to evaluate a just cause and consideration of proportionality in relation to that cause which also requires knowledge of the likely actual consequences uh, of launching a war and, and of the alternatives to not launching it. These are morally weighty epistemic responsibilities. And although the moral philosopher may be best placed to identify them, it is on McMahon's account the responsibility of all those engaged in war to live up to them and act on the results. Living up to one's epistemic responsibilities entails discounting many of the standard reasons why soldiers and citizens might consider it just to go to war. Identification with national interest, trust in political leadership, professional or political obligation. What counts is the justice of the cause weighed up in relation to the probable costs of war. In one of his most well-known books published in 2009, Killing in War... McMahon examines closely the question of how liberal militaries might live up to their epistemic responsibilities. An important part of this story is moral and historical education, including education in the ways in which the judgment of soldiers may be biased towards their own political community, as well as their professional attachment to war fighting as a legitimate activity. He suggests that were soldiers to be able to exercise proper moral and empirical judgment in relation to the permissibility of participating in war, then their judgment would, most of the time, tend to come out against the probability of the war in question being just. Nevertheless, he is insistent insistent that this does not mean that we should embrace a pacifist position. And he states this again and again in his work on cosmopolitan just war theory. Is one example of a quotation. My argument that the moral risks involved in the participation in war may exceed those of non-participation exerts pressure in the direction of a contingent form of pacifism. But this pressure can be resisted and successfully overcome when war is just. It can be overcome by careful attention to the facts and careful moral reasoning. There was little uncertainty, for example, that the Allied war against Nazi Germany and the war against Imperial Japan were just wars, end of quotation. It's very interesting how World War II occupies an absolutely iconic position in just war theory literatures as the example of a just war, and that might be something that would be interesting to discuss in the Q&A. For cosmopolitanism, just war is essentially an aggregate of individual acts of self-defence that would be considered morally permissible outside of the context of war. From this point of view, if you took the position of an absolute pacifist, you would have to be committed to the rejection of any act of violence under any circumstances, and the argument is that this is just inherently ethical and plausible. Even when it comes to contingent pacifism, which he referred to in that quotation just now, which means you might in principle think that war could be just, but you don't think it can be just, for instance, if it involves killing people who are not legitimate targets and you think in modern warfare that's always bound to happen, therefore you go for a pacifist position because you know any actual war will breach the principles of just war. Even when it comes to contingent pacifism, McMahon also wants to reject that. For two reasons, really. Partly because of this overwhelming view that some wars are morally necessary to fight, that some causes are so great that you have to be able to fight for them but also because, utilising an old sort of philosophical distinction between doing and allowing and different moral weights being given to them, he argues that pacifists end up allowing harms to be done and that can be as bad as inflicting harms. So Macmillan's uncovering of the morality of war is intended to enable participants in war, in particular military personnel, to live up to their epistemic responsibilities and make choices on that basis. It's through the proper exercise of individual conscience that McMahon seeks to preempt moral stupidity about war. Military personnel, in his view, have been morally and empirically ignorant about war for a variety of reasons. Some of those reasons are because of a refusal to question unthinking assumptions about the moral status of political community or what it means to be a good soldier. Others are to do with ways in which soldiers have been lied to or coerced, including, of course, by philosophers, lawyers and politicians, who have endorsed the notion that in some sense war creates a different kind of moral universe. The cosmopolitan ethics of war offers a corrective to moral and empirical ignorance, by laying out the factors that need to be taken into account for a war to qualify as just and by insisting on the personal individual responsibility of every military actor to to absorb and act on the basis of that moral knowledge. Arguments in the cosmopolitan ethics of war necessarily focus on reasons, intentions, actions and consequences in relation to a competent moral actor faced with a particular moral dilemma. In principle, on this account, a just war is one conducted by morally knowledgeable actors making decisions with a high degree of certainty as to the likely outcome of their actions. It's in this way that just war is stripped of the moral stupidity that marks most actual wars and the ways in which they've traditionally been regulated and evaluated. So in summary, therefore, if we look at cosmopolitan just war arguments, which are incredibly complicated and technical, and I'm I'm reducing things enormously here, two things really emerge. In relation to war, war is understood as an aggregate of individual violent acts of aggression and self-defence. So it's a kind of adding up of lots of different individual actions. A moral stupidity resides in our incapacity to put into practice the moral knowledge provided, in the first instance anyway, by philosophers. Okay, so at this point I want to introduce two figures uh, from the time of the First World War, both of whom would... Uh, certainly, I think, qualify as morally stupid, though in rather different ways, according to the cosmopolitan account of just war. The two figures are Ludwig Wittgenstein and then Jane Addams. So let's just say something about Wittgenstein first. Wittgenstein, everybody will know, an incredibly brilliant young philosopher. He'd been overworking with Russell and Moore and so on. And many of his um, friends were surprised that he volunteered to fight for Austro-Hungary in the First World War. And if you look at Ray Monk's biography of Wittgenstein, various things come out as to why Wittgenstein did this. He didn't have to do it, he chose to do it. Here's a quotation from from Wittgenstein uh, in a, a diary entry, I think, or it might have been a letter. The thought that our race will be defeated depresses me tremendously because I am German through and through. But monk also adds to this patriotic argument for why Wittgenstein might have volunteered to fight for Austro-Hungary in the First World War. Although a patriot, Wittgenstein's motives for enlisting in the army were more complicated than a desire to defend his country. His sister, Amina, thought it had to do, and this is a quotation from her, with an intense desire to take something difficult upon himself and to do something other than purely intellectual work. Wittgenstein felt that the experience of facing death would in some way or other improve him. He went onto the front line eventually. The first year or two he was behind the lines, but he did get onto the front line, having very much argued to do so. All his friends kept trying to keep him off it and he wanted to get on it. He went through various phases during the war. He got incredibly enthusiastic about Tolstoy's Gospels, for instance. Uh, He ended up as a prisoner of war, captured by the Italians. Um, He wrote The Tractatus, And he didn't, it seems, sort out his existential dilemmas very well. But that is the story of his involvement in that particular war. So that's the first figure I want to introduce into the discussion. The second is Jane Addams. Again, many of you all know Jane Addams, and extremely um, famous for her settlement work in the U.S., Uh, She was um, someone who was deeply involved in the Progressive Party in the U.S. in the early years of of the 20th century. Uh, She contributed to various kinds of legislation around things like child labour and so on. And Hull House did tremendous work within the neighbourhood that it was uh, based in in Chicago. And she was also someone who was involved in peace politics before the First World War started, although it came to occupy a much larger part of her work after the First World War. In many ways, her views about war reflect liberal assumptions about the redundancy of war that we also find in thinkers like Norman Angel in the UK at a similar period. As well as being involved in peace politics in the US, in 1915 Jane Addams chaired the famous Conference of Women at the Hague, which replaced a planned suffrage conference, an international suffrage conference, and became instead a forum for pushing a peace agenda and the beginnings of what became the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. In total contrast to Wittgenstein, Jane Addams could not see how war could be a good thing, either politically or existentially. She spent the war campaigning against it, including when the US became a party to the conflict. She worked to address starvation and displacement across Europe after World War I and, in conjunction with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, was very much part of attempts to influence the peace settlement to be less punitive and to deal with the appalling, uh, horrendous social outcomes of the war. So that's just a little potted biography in relation to Wittgenstein and the First World War and Jane Addams in relation to the First World War. Let's just go back to Wittgenstein. So in what ways was Wittgenstein morally stupid from a cosmopolitan point of view? Now here we have something very useful, and this is the reason, of course, why I picked up Wittgenstein in the first place, which is that Jeff McMahon, in several times in his texts, goes back to Wittgenstein, clearly very angry with Wittgenstein in some ways, because he was so stupid about the First World War. I quote, Wittgenstein had strong views about ethics and was uncompromising in living and acting as he thought he ought to, however eccentric his behaviour might seem to others. Yet he not only had no scruples about fighting in this stupid and barbaric war, but was even determined with characteristic intensity to fight on the side of the aggressor and for reasons that seemed to have derived primarily from his personal psychological needs and to have little or nothing to do with the reasons that motivated the Austrian government to go to war. End of quotation. That's McMahon again in his book, Killing in War. (coughs) What seems to really frustrate McMahon here is that Wittgenstein was so clever. He was not a stupid person, but he was stupid about war. He didn't respond to it rationally. His stupidity was twofold, in that he failed to understand the meaning of war and the particular wrong that he was doing by fighting for an unjust cause – going back to war being the aggregate of lots of individual actions on the cosmopolitan view of the meaning of war, and because his behaviour reflected a misunderstanding of morality as an existential quest, a matter of character and action as opposed to the application of well-established principles that are rationally accessible. Not very surprising any of that one can see exactly why, from a cosmopolitan point of view, Wittgenstein is stupid about war. What about Jane Addams then? In what ways is she stupid about war from a cosmopolitan point of view? As far as I know, McMahon never discusses Jane Addams directly, but I could be wrong about that. There could be uh, references in parts of his work. But it's pretty clear from what we know of the cosmopolitan argument already that the cosmopolitan view of Adams wouldn't be the same as the cosmopolitan view of Wittgenstein. From the point of someone like McMahon, the thing with Adams is that in relation to the First World War, she was right to oppose it because it was a stupid and barbaric war, but she was right for the wrong reasons. Her reasons for arriving at those conclusions were wrong because they understood war as something other than the aggregation of individual actions of aggression and defence and because they were based in a pragmatist social ethics which was fundamentally democratic and fallibilist in its understanding of the nature and authority of moral judgement. So in Adam's case, rather than there being a set of Principles that you can access through ratiocination that will tell you what is the difference between justice and injustice. In Adams' case, those judgments have to emerge out of actual engagement between different people occupying different perspectives. I want to move now to look in more detail at the kinds of claims Jane Adams made about war and about moral intelligence or stupidity and at how themes in her analysis of war and in her account of morality have continued to work through feminist thought about war over the past century. Let's take the analysis of war first. As noted above, Jane Adams, in many ways exemplified a liberal position on the question of war pre-World War I, one in which war was understood as anachronistic and contrary to globalising economic and political trends of the time. However, Adams challenged prevailing views about war more deeply because she brought gender into her analysis of nationalism, militarism, the logic of violence and myths of chivalry and heroism. She was concerned about the structural effects of war on society in times of both war and peace and how nationalist and militarist agendas were linked to the oppressions of populations, including women. She was interested in the gendered presuppositions and effects of war. It's interesting to note that she was pilloried at the time in particular for reporting on conversations that she'd had with young men fighting in Europe or who had been fighting in Europe who reported that stimulants were needed to get men to do bayonet charges and also for discussing the effects of war on mental health. This was seen as undermining the heroism of young men and the worth of their sacrifice. So all the commentary and all the vilification that came Adams' way after she made her stance clear about the First World War were not responded to by any substantive engagement with her arguments. What really upset people was that she seemed in some ways, although I can't really see how she was doing it in the way in which she spoke, to be belittling what making a heroic sacrifice meant. Arguments made by Adams and her contemporaries have continued to be developed in feminist contestation over war and the relation between war and gender. Over the past century, feminist scholars have systematically and repeatedly demonstrated that gendered identities are fundamental to the meaning and practice of war, from the maintenance of military capacity in times of peace, to national identity, to military training, to the development and marketing of weapons and weapons systems, to war propaganda, to who's permitted to fight and how, to different modes of legitimation and victimisation, different experiences of pacification, conflict resolution, demobilisation, transitional justice, peace. The list can just go on and on. Gender is everywhere when it comes to any aspect of war and war-making. Feminists have documented the gendered presuppositions and consequences of war, the ways in which war is embedded in and reproduces gendered political, economic and ideological structures, and the continuum between the organised violence of the state and interpersonal violence at a domestic level. Since feminism in its various guises is defined by a commitment to challenging gendered relations of power, this understanding of war as a fundamentally gendered practice is also fundamental to feminist moral judgment of war. And this is clear in Adams' work and in the generations of feminists that follow. So what about the understanding of morality? If that's the understanding of war that informs feminist concerns, what about the understanding of morality that informs Adams's pacifism? It took a very different form from either Wittgenstein's existentialist position or cosmopolitanism's rationalism. Adams was a moral pragmatist, influenced by and also influencing Dewey's philosophical understanding of the grounds of morality in lived experience, experimentation, and democratic deliberation. For Adams, the answers to moral questions were not available through processes, processes of individual conscientious ratiocination or existentialist commitment. Moral judgment should not be understood as fixed truths, but rather as ongoing and permanently revisable outcomes of political deliberation and engagement with others, starting from a standpoint of moral humility in which you do not assume that you will necessarily turn out to be right. In more recent times, feminist ethics has followed in Adams's footsteps in drawing on traditions of ethics distinct from rights-based theories such as cosmopolitan just war theory, In recent times, the most significant theoretical influence on contemporary arguments in the feminist ethics of war has been the feminist ethics of care, which foregrounds relations between moral subjects rather than individuals in its moral ontology. So it focuses on the relations between rather than the individual subjects. And focuses on social and political context in terms of how judgments are grounded and on virtues, moral feeling, practices of responsibility in the prescriptive implications that it comes up with. And that's obviously a whole other story that I could talk a lot about, but for the purposes of this lecture, I'm keeping it very short. Now, I don't mean to assert that all feminists draw pacifist conclusions in thinking about the morality of war. Broadly speaking, one can identify two tendencies within the feminist ethics of war. The first rejects the tradition of just war thinking altogether and moves very close, if not entirely, towards pacifism and non-violence as the way forward. The second seeks to rework just war theory in ways that will somehow make it more compatible with feminist insights. And we'll see a couple of examples of that as I go on. In both cases, however, that kind of work is characterized by an analysis of war and an understanding of moral intelligence that remains much closer to the model that's offered us by Adams than the uh, model that we get from McMahon or indeed from Wittgenstein. So having set out key differences between how cosmopolitans as opposed to feminists understand war and moral intelligence or stupidity, I want to now go on and examine these, um, explore these differences by examining answers uh, that cosmopolitanism and feminism offer to two classical just war questions: under what circumstances should I fight, and if I if I if I do actually fight, whom may I kill and injure? Okay, so we move now to the first of those questions: under what circumstances should I fight? As we've seen, cosmopolitanism makes just cause and proportionality central to what counts in terms of the justice of war. It also stages the drama of determination of whether or not criteria of justice have been met within the conscience of the deliberating moral agent, in particular that of the potential or actual fighter. There are in effect two sets of circumstances that need to be in place in order to identify the justice or injustice of fighting in war. Objective circumstances in which criteria of just cause and proportionality are met and subjective circumstances in which choosing moral agents possess the appropriate moral and empirical knowledge and the capacity to detach themselves from sources of bias to be able to make the judgments about whether those criteria have been met. Although it may be possible for a soldier embedded in nationalist and military cultures to make the right decision about just whether or not it is uh, right to fight, to the extent that those cultures enable the soldier to make the decision to fight, the right decision from a cosmopolitan point of view is only ever a happy accident. It shouldn't be because of those kinds of cultures that you come to the right decision. consistently sound judgments about the justice of war require the soldier to reason in isolation from such aspects of his or her identity and we can see this in McMahon's account of the moral stupidity of Wittgenstein who in spite of his intelligence and concern with his own ethical standing chose to fight in an unjust war he should have been able to distance himself from whatever demons were driving his identity issues in thinking about whether he should fight On the Cosmopolitan way of looking at things, morality is about individual ratiocination and action. And this has profound implications for what can and cannot enter into consideration when asking the question of whether it is just to fight. One of the things that drops out of the ethical equation is the possibility of asking ethical questions about the conditions within which individual ratiocination is able to be meaningful and action-motivated for those that are fighting. For example, conditions that include gendered ideologies and gendered relations of power. From the point of view of the cosmopolitan ethics of war, gender cannot matter ethically in a just war, except as a source of bias to be eliminated. If soldiers are fighting wars because of their identification with gendered value systems embedded in notions such as loyalty to nation or comrades or virtues of courage or heroism, then this distorts judgment and must be rectified through rational demystification and education. Cosmopolitanism calls for the military moral agent not just to be aware of moral truths but also facts about history, about state decision-making. But it does not call for awareness of facts about why and how just combatants are able to fight and to identify themselves as just in the course of fighting. It's simply assumed that individual moral certainty will be enough. It's therefore not necessary to factor into the ethical equation a moral evaluation of nationalism, chivalry or military culture, or the gendered relations of power that they reflect and perpetuate. These things only matter as marks of unjust fighting. In cosmopolitan just war thinking, the use of violence is treated in instrumental terms as the tool that, where all all else fails, will be able to get the job done. And although it's recognised that this is a horrific instrument with appalling consequences, little attention is paid to the genealogy of the identification of violence with decisive political action in a world in which the tools of violence are reserved to masculinised actors – or to the ethical implication of what the practice of violence requires in terms of those trained to perpetrate it, as well as those who suffer from it directly and indirectly. The assumption is that the competent moral actor can pick the tool of violence up, use it effectively according to intended outcomes, and put it down without changing who they are. And without requiring a context of narratives of gender, citizenship and solidarity through which that act can be made legitimate and meaningful beyond its immediate purpose. From a feminist point of view, Wittgenstein's moral stupidity does not lie primarily in the falsity of his conclusions, or indeed his failure to draw them, about the justice of Austria-Hungary's cause. Nor is his stupidity his, in the sense of being detachable from him, as some kind of error of judgment. For feminist analysts, there's nothing particularly surprising in Wittgenstein looking to participation in war as a way to resolve existential conflicts about his moral worthiness. Because the link between war and a series of gendered ethical values is one of the ways in which war retains its legitimacy and plausibility as a means of settling political disputes. On this account, on a feminist account, Wittgenstein's stupidity belongs to war as much as to him. It is a product not of just or unjust war, but of war per se, as a long standing, hugely complex social institution in which gender identities and hierarchies have been constructed and reproduced, including when it comes to what it means to be a man and what it means to be an effective moral actor. Of course, this doesn't mean that Wittgenstein could not have acted differently, but in order to do so he would have needed to put into question more than the moral legitimacy of Austria Hungary's cause. When war is reduced to a tool for individual actors that works and explained in terms of what would be permissible in the context of individual interactions with a variety of people described as unjust combatants or non combatants or helpless just civilians, always people in an asymmetrical position in relation to the moral actor, the person making the choice or the judgment. It's easy to put many of the technological, economic, ideological and existential conditions that make war possible, as well as the magnitude of the unintended consequences of war, to one side in the process of ethical evaluation. But from a feminist point of view, this renders the ethical assessment of war radically incomplete in two different ways. First, because it isn't possible for the relation between gender and war to enter into the evaluation of the justice of war, even though it is as much a part of supposedly just, or whatever criteria you use, as of unjust wars. And second, because it enables the ethical theorist to be unreflective about his or her own relationship to war. For the feminist soldier deciding whether it is just to fight, the question is more complicated objectively and subjectively than for the cosmopolitan. The cosmopolitan soldier knows that most previous wars have not been just, that she needs to correct for her potential biases as a soldier and citizen, but she has a clear set of objective criteria and the moral capacity to transcend her own biases. The feminist soldier knows that not only have most previous wars not been just in terms of their immediate cause and outcome... But that all wars have relied on reproduced and perpetuated ideologies and relations of power that in the majority of cases have reinforced rather than challenged gendered hierarchies and myths about the ultimate efficacy of violence. The criteria by which the feminist soldier makes her judgment must balance the immediate justification of a specific use of force, not only in relation to immediate proportionality considerations, but also in relation to the ongoing damage that war will do as an institutionalised practice across the full range of aspects of individual and collective existence. For feminist fighters, the difficulties of disentangling the aspects of war to be taken account of in determining justice are compounded by their rejection of cosmopolitan assumptions that knowledge about war is accessible individually or that moral thinkers can detach themselves from identities and relations of power as sources of bias. An example of a feminist thinker who attempts to, as it were, adapt or or recreate just war thinking along feminist lines is a person called Laura Sjobergh. And we can see her struggling to recast the principle of just cause along more feminist lines. One of the things that she says is, just cause can exist when and only when it meets a dialogical interpretation of justice arrived at by global political interaction when it comes out of a just political context on the part of the international actor choosing to go to war and when the grievance is not resolvable in the context of just politics. End of quote. In contrast to McMahon and other cosmopolitans for whom objective moral knowledge can be attained through individual thinking, for Sioberg, the circumstances under which I should fight can only be decided through a kind of interaction with others that would actually require an intense democratisation of political decision-making processes. Paying attention to individual conscience is not enough. And there's no way of drawing a clear line between objective and subjective conditions when it comes to answering the question of whether I should fight. But if this is so, it becomes hard to see how war could be determined to be just outside of the context of a radically different world. In trying to bring all of the dimensions of war as an institutionalised practice, as well as trying to democratise the procedure for determining whether just war criteria are met, feminist arguments make the possibility of justifying war incredibly remote, if not logically impossible. So I want to move now to the second question. If I should fight, whom may I kill and injure? Theories about justice in the course of war, justice in Bello, including cosmopolitan accounts, rely on two important ideas. The first is the principle of discrimination, which draws the line between legitimate and illegitimate targets, And the second is the principle of double effect, or it's often referred to as the principle of double effect, in which harms to illegitimate targets are foreseen, people know they're going to happen, but they're not intended and therefore do not count in the proportionality calculation or do not count as much in the proportionality calculation. (laughs) Feminist research has shown how moral and legal discourses of discrimination between legitimate and illegitimate targets from the traditional distinction between the innocent and guilty to the contemporary distinction between combatants and civilians, have been enmeshed in and reproduced gendered and civilizational assumptions. Women and children have traditionally served as the proxy for the meanings of innocent and civilian, even in a world in which women and child soldiers and male civilians are common. I'm always astonished by the way in which reports of Attacks when they want to make it clear civilians have been hit, they always mention women and children as if men could not be civilians. What the work of scholars such as Helen Kinsella and others have drawn attention to is that the ways in which the principle of discrimination acts to constrain and enable the practice of war depend heavily on decisions about how the characteristics of the relevant categories are interpreted, which in turn depends heavily on the world of meaning into which those categories are released. Rather than being neutral descriptions, the meanings of innocent or civilian have been produced as actionable by being tied to gendered and civilizational hierarchies, which have clarified differently in different contexts who one may be permitted to kill and who not, and the difference between just and unjust warfare, and therefore of course legitimated the practice of war per se. Kinsella points out in relation to debates over the 1977 protocols protocols intended to govern wars of self-determination against colonial rule. Um, Wars that clearly have a lot in common with with many of today's asymmetrical and civil conflicts. She points out, delegates delegates describe the distinction between combatant and civilian as blurred, emptied of substance and indistinguishable. Not only was its empirical existence subject to dispute, but also its legitimacy as a foundation for the laws of war. Nonetheless, the delegates retained the distinction because it continued to mark the difference between civilization and barbarism. Cosmopolitanism reworks the principle of discrimination in war, discrimination in, war in terms of a rights-based understanding of the distinction between liability and immunity to attack. This distinction is presented as political, politically neutral, with no gendered or civilisational implications. As I've noted already, cosmopolitan moral reasoning starts from the assumption of the moral priority of the individual over the community, and a continuity between the morality that governs harming and killing outside of war, and that governs harming and killing in the context of war. A lot of this moral reasoning is worked out by analogy with the implications of hypothetical cases of individual killing or harm in the defence and preservation of self or others. Kinds of thoughts, experiments in effect. And it's assumed that such reasoning is substantively apolitical and often the hypothetical cases that are used to refine that reasoning are deliberately fantastical in order to remove them from everyday prejudices. Yet even abstract moral reasoning takes place within an established universe of meaning. And there is a gendered politics at work in representations of the world of interpersonal interaction reflected in these hypothetical thought experiments. For instance, in the case of McMahon, when he's talking about the full-blown culpable attacker who carries full liability for his actions, he's generally gendered male. Victims are generally gendered female. As the position gets more mixed, so do the genders of attackers and victims get more mixed. Though there's still a prevailing tendency for victims to be gendered female, and this is always the case when rape or sexual violence is at issue. Moreover, when analogies move to identities within the real world, gendering tends to follow along traditional lines. Minors are male, drivers may be male or female, soldiers are usually male. The point here is not to suggest that there may not be reasons to represent the world in these gendered terms, but rather to show that the reworking of distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate targets in terms of liability or immunity to attack at the level of individuals in the realm of thought experiments is already gendered. The new basis for discrimination already resonates with common sense understandings of gender as a marker of difference in war between those liable to harm and those not. Likewise the cosmopolitan insistence on the ethical asymmetry of just combatants as opposed to unjust combatants isn't intended to map onto familiar civilizational hierarchies any more than it is onto gendered ones nevertheless the world into which it is released is one in which it is all too easy to match just combatants the policeman equivalent as it were with liberal militaries unjust combatants with racialized non-liberal others a bunch of murderous attackers and those immune to attack with feminised civilians. From a point of view in which just war theory is understood as part of a complex of war and gender, the points of similarity between the imagined world of cosmopolitan morality and the distinctions drawn within it between different types of moral actor, and an actual world of asymmetrical wars, humanitarian intervention, and responsibility to protect, is itself morally significant. McMahon also argues in terms of double effect that the unintentional killing or harming of civilians is not necessarily unjust, even if those civilians were not liable to be killed. In other words, they weren't guilty of anything. There are certain limits to the permissiveness of double effect. At some point, the numbers of deaths of bystanders or innocent civilians must outweigh the value of achieving a just cause. Nevertheless, from a feminist perspective... The effect of this argument is to morally discount harms that are disproportionately experienced by civilian populations. This reinforces gendered hierarchies that valorise some deaths over others. Paradoxically, the chivalric commitment to the protection of women and children, Cynthia Enlow always runs those together, is a way of underlining that the lives of those categorised under this heading do not matter. They are not listed on the war memorial. The problems for feminists with principles of discrimination and double effect make it very difficult to formulate a principled response to this question, the question of whom, I, whom may I kill or injure, unless it's the response that I may not kill anyone at all. Thinking about justice in Bello from a feminist perspective, Siobo, who I mentioned earlier, who's trying to wrestle with making just war more compatible with feminism, completely rejects the notion of double effect and develops a concept of what she calls empathetic war fighting. This calls for a shift from asking who the party intends to shoot at, as the relevant moral question, to asking who the party might hit. She extends and complicates what it is that fighters need to take account of in how they fight. Her answer combines a structural analysis of the vulnerability of populations affected by war, including particularly those most poor and marginalised, with approaches she labels impact on and responsibility for. Impact on approaches take into account all the different kinds of damage fighting can foreseeably do and the nature of the populations that will be the victims of that damage. It not only counts various kinds of collateral damage in proportionality judgments, but also does not target populations against whom there is no legitimate grievance because they had no power over the decisions that were made in starting the war in the first place. She says, Empathetic war fighting makes a special effort to take note of those impacts of war least likely to be recognised in traditional just war evaluations. These impacts include the health effects on the state's poorest citizens, effects on family structure, problems of literacy, reactive gender conservatism, and the like. Responsibility for approaches give full moral consideration to the damage that will be done by error in warfare as part of consideration of ethical considerations ad bellum. The implication of Sjöberg's argument is not only that the violence of just belligerents will have to be very narrowly restricted in order to meet her discriminatory requirements, but also that the epistemic responsibilities of just belligerents are even more demanding than those imposed by cosmopolitanism. Not only do just belligerents need moral and empirical knowledge about just war criteria and the justice of their cause they also need to be experts on the political and material conditions of the populations they are targeting. Overall, therefore, although Sjöberg does not herself draw this conclusion, in my view it's very difficult to see how her empathetic warfighters would be justified in ever targeting anyone at all. In his work, McMahon regularly draws attention to degrees of moral obtuseness and stupidity in otherwise intelligent people when it comes to the ethics of war. The task of the moral theorist is to detach war from moral stupidity and clarify the precise criteria for war to be just. Many feminists would agree with cosmopolitans that aspects of traditional ways of thinking about justice in war are morally problematic. Uh, Mostly, feminists are no more enamored of Wittgenstein's position than are cosmopolitan just war theorists. Nevertheless, because for feminists the inadequacies of Wittgenstein's patriotic and existential endorsement of war are rooted in the broader moral reality of war and gender and its pervasive presence across public and private life, what is wrong with Wittgenstein is not reducible to cognitive error. Rather than mistakes, Wittgenstein's reasons for endorsing war are more like symptoms, not open to correction and detachment from that in which they are embodied. From this point of view, in focusing on the moral intelligence, or lack of it, of individual participants in war, cosmopolitanism fails to appreciate the moral stupidity of war as such. The ethical problem is not that Wittgenstein was irrational, but that in order for wars to continue to be fought, fighters will need to be motivated, and evidence suggests that that motivation is inseparable from gendered and collective identities that themselves perpetuate war as a legitimate institution. Feminist analysis shows that moral stupidity inheres not only in how people make judgments about the morality of war, but in the nature of war itself. It's inherent in how people are, as well as in what people do, regardless of whether any particular war may be counted as just or unjust in cosmopolitan terms. I said at the beginning of this lecture, and you'll be relieved to hear it's coming to a close, uh, that I thought cosmopolitan just war thinking misunderstood war and the meaning of moral intelligence. And that feminist pacifist arguments from 1914 to the present day offer a much more persuasive understanding of war, the moral challenges it poses, and the route to a morally intelligent engagement with those challenges. For cosmopolitan just war theory, the most important ethical question to be asked is whether the cause of war is just. From a feminist pacifist point of view, the most important ethical question is what does war produce and reproduce, regardless of whether it is counted as just or unjust, on whatever criteria you may be using. Jane Addams was struck by the degree of attachment that all people of different nationalities she met in Europe in 1915, and she did a big round of various places on both sides of the conflict, the attachment that all of those people had to the justice of their cause, even as they deplored the existence of war. She also understood that moral engagement with war required more than assembling a moralised costs and benefits account. In Adams's World As In Ours, pacifism is associated with passivity and the willingness to endure injustice. But what her work shows, and that of many feminist theorists who followed her, is that moral and political laziness follows much more readily from our readiness to draw the line between just and unjust violence than from an opposition to violence as such. The really hard work is to fight non-violently, against the many different ways in which the gendered scripts of war pervade our existence. I'll stop there.
0: Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, I think we should move straight into having a series of questions and discussion. Um, I'll just start by taking individuals, but if it seems that there's a lot of people, we might take them in, in groups. Um, so who, who would like to um, ask a question to begin with? That's always the tricky, the tricky bit. So we have, have a gentleman here. Could I just ask everyone to say who they are and where they're from just before they...
2: Uh.
3: I'm Gar Stinson, and uh, well, I from Dorset, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> um, the the the, uh, conf- the conflicting philosophers and thinkers you've talked about, I, and and I, I may well be wrong about this, but but they, it sounds as if in actuality they're not really um, thinking through or or seeing a difference between an individual deciding that they've got to kill someone for some reason, or indeed a, a policeman, a police officer I should say, deciding to kill someone for some reason, and what really happens when people engage in war. E- even in quite informal armies, most fighters, one's well, seen a lot up close, most fighters engage to the group, and it's at that point they make a moral decision. Once they're in the group, and certainly once they're you know, in a situation of exchanging fire, they're, they're already very committed. Their decision wasn't... It, Akin to the individual on the street deciding whether or not to kill another individual, even if one of those individuals is an officer of the state, as it were.
4: Mm,
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, I I entirely agree (laughs) with with what you said there. I I think that's completely right. Um, It seems to me to be a profound problem um, with the cosmopolitan just war thinking that I've been attempting to critique, that it it starts from this model of of moral decision-making that involves the individual somehow always starting from the ground up, somehow detached from their identities with others, from group identities and so on. What I, I think is powerful about the feminist critique of that is that it actually starts from an understanding that war is only able to happen because of various kinds of group affiliations, identities, assumptions which are bound up with lots and lots of different value systems including gendered value systems and that therefore to speak as if the ethics of war could be exhausted in terms of a discussion about decisions is fundamentally mistaken. Is it not on?
0: Perhaps we'll just let the Speaker answer that question and then we can come to you in a minute.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I've I've said most most of what I wanted to say in relation to that, which is that I agree with you and that I think there's a real problem with the way that we're so limited in trying to think about the ethics of war because we tend to bring it back to this kind of decision. I think there's parts of the just war tradition that are much more open to thinking about the collective, but what tends to happen there is a kind of... The sorts of things cosmopolitan's perhaps more legitimately complain about, which is that this subsumption of the individual under the community or the identity of them with the nation is somehow given a kind of ethical value in and of itself. What, what feminists do, I think, is provide us with a vocabulary that can be ethical, ethically critical, both of those more traditional just war ways of thinking and of the individualistic just war thinking of, of the cosmopolitans.
0: Did you want to say something more about that? Had you finished what you... Just say who you are first, if you don't mind. I
2: you.
0: you just have to speak into it, that's all.
4: Yeah, through through the fact I have a slightly shorter time of experience on this planet, I might be considered like being less uh, legitimate in my testimony, but my mother's from Vietnam, which uh, which was a very small country, who lived a terrible war in the 70s, and my ex-godfather, he was in Afghanistan in the 70s during the start of the conflict with the Middle Orient. But the thing is, what is the problem with war is that you cannot say there's ethics in war because it's just by the attraction of a small amount of money, people who get lost with anomie consequences made of the financial system we currently support that are just in break up with civil environment and become tools of war without war having any proper ethics because it's it's just killing people and preserving that perennity of uh, life's uh, absurdity should be based on something random within the basis of its evolution. Even the way most of the time when there's a country, like when we observed what was happening in Iraq and in Syria, And in Israel and Palestine, it comes from what is the type of medical treatment of people who have never been soldiers, who have no idea of what is being a soldier, who don't get back to their home without a leg, without an arm, and that despite the, the fact we are not them, they are still human beings and that uh, there's a structure in United, supposed pretended United Nations that is called the UNIDIR that is more of a cover-up of the type of financial reality, inequality we meet between poor and rich countries, and they're paid thousands of pounds a month to actually preserve that there's military attrition in the NATO and that it has no proper uh, conception of a uh, hope that the GATT would have a little more logics within what is productivity, inflation linked to self-destruct. Okay,
0: well, there's <laughs> a lot of issues coming yeah. out there. If you could yeah. just, just round it up.
4: Yeah, uh, th- th-
1: thanks for that. I mean, I, I take the general <coughs> point, which is an, an argument because that me, I'm, has I'm, nothing I'm to do with ethics. And,
4: and I find, I find objects from the fact that we' are in 21st century and despite all the human work is still functioning on basis of what is genocidal amalgamic yeah. prejudicial yeah. everything that creates the segregation remaining that causes war and illusion on the part of the civil, civil population who still thinks that people have to be, to wait to be dead to become heroes to support a national power that' okay been, yeah. thank you very much uh, yeah Let me
0: just hear from the speaker. if I could just
4: yeah. comment two comments on that really Um,
1: One is that I think it's a perfectly plausible position to argue that ethics has nothing to do with war and some people do argue that the war is in effect a kind of outside of um, ethics but I think war happens in part because people are willing to see ethics as part of it so the claim is made that there is an ethics or can be an ethics involved. And one of the reasons people are able to fight is because they can identify what they're doing as in some sense just. Now, I'm not saying that's correct. I'm saying that's part of the language, part of the discourse of war as it exists. The reason I am interested in feminist responses to war is because I think it has precisely the capacity for a wholesale critique of war of the kind that I suspect that you have in mind. And in some ways that critique is very much about getting people to think again about commonplace assumptions about what makes the difference between just and unjust violence.
0: Okay, let's see. Um, so now we've got a number of questions. Um, Liz. Hi. Just wait for the... Thank you.
5: Hi, Liz Fraser. Um, I want to ask you about the distinction between war and other forms of violence and whether we should and can think of it um, differently so the criticism of McMahon is that he has this aggregationist attitude to war that war is nothing but an aggregation of individual acts of aggression, self-defence killing, violence and um, and so on but I wasn't then clear where, as it were, used to, And I can see the um, objection to that kind of methodological individualism, as it were. But where, how do we think of the relationship between war and violence? Because on, I, do you want to think of these as just being a continuum? Or when we talk about the ethics of war, are we in a completely different terrain from the ethics
1: of mm. for, different mm. forms of violence? Mm. Mm. I mean, I suppose I've I've got a kind of double position on that, which is that I think um, once one unpacks war, it encompasses a whole range of other things, many of which are linked to violences that we tend to treat as if they're separate from war. Um, you know, One example that came up in the talk was the link between uh, war and domestic violence, for instance. Um, so I do think it's a, a continuum in some ways. But I also think there is a very specific and rich set of discourses around something that is named as war, rather than as another kind of fighting and that's one of the reasons why it's very interesting where you know, the battle between is this terrorism or is this war all those kinds of debates so I am also interested in the, the kinds of um, legitimising um, techniques people use when they are inhabiting the discourse of war and seeing what they are doing as war so I think you can also separate it out to some extent.
0: Okay. Um, can I start with this gentleman with the glasses, then this uh, woman after, after you at the back? Yep.
3: Hello. Uh, my name's Ian Orr, and I'm a retired UK diplomat but who studied moral philosophy university. Uh, <laughs> uh, my question would be, how important do you see the distinction between... Uh, the use of violence within the state and the state being if you like the organization and through through its if you like it 's got democratic structures legitimizing the use of violence by certain people in certain ways, and the use of violence in war involving people not of and, and Action outside that same state. So does that make a difference?
1: Thanks, that's a really good question. It relates to to Liz's question as well, I think. Um, I I think there are really fundamental issues here about the state and the nature of the modern state and the ways in which it is tied up. With this notion of the monopoly of legitimate violence within and the projection of violence without with, under certain circumstances, I mean I think the two are tied together in terms of what the state means um, that then raises the question of whether the the whether if one finds the external projected violence of the state illegitimate, one therefore has to find the internal projected violence of the state illegitimate. And I think this is where it becomes extremely difficult, and it partly relates to what kind of violence is is involved. I mean, I, I do think there are huge problems with the violence that the state projects internally. I think there are all sorts of things we do, like locking people up for years and years and years, which are morally highly problematic so i don't think it i do think it's related but i do think there are distinctions to be made and one has to pick it apart very carefully i don't think i can just apply all the things i've tried to say about war from a feminist ethical perspective and just lump them onto what goes on within but this is part of the same story they are not two different stories so there's got to be connections somewhere i think you're right but i think it takes a lot of careful thought to pick them apart So that isn't a very satisfactory answer, because I need to think about it more.
0: Okay, and the woman at the back.
6: Hi there. Thank you, Kim, for a really fantastic lecture. It was very thought-provoking. And I feel like I agree with you, and yet I'm still troubled by two issues. One of them is about democratisation. You talk about the democratisation of moral decision-making, and yet what you've set out to us here is not something I imagine a democracy would come to in the way that it makes decisions about wars. So you think about the, the, apparently millions of people who've now been down to the Tower of London who think about war in a very particular way, in the way that you started your lecture. Well, wouldn't you have to do a lot of moral education in feminist moral <laughs> Is that... <laughs> I yeah. think you've got to get your question in less than ten seconds before the mic is no. um, So, uh, So when you have to do a lot of education of a populace in order to get the kind of moral, democratic moral decision-making that you're looking for. And the other thing is you talk about that uh, Adam's position is... <clears throat> okay, he's back on again. Um, <laughs> that each individual circumstance, you're talking about the politics of each individual circumstance, and yet you said very little about acts of violence that are taking place now. So... We, start, we always start with moral decision making now and around here. We are in a world that's full of violence. We're in a world where violence is being done to many people at the moment. How does this kind of thinking help us when faced with people in the Central African Republic, with the civilians who are being targeted in Sri Lanka, with people who are being targeted in Syria at the moment? It's a, it's a deeply heartless philosophy actually for the people that we might talk about who are being targeted right now. And So how do you make the justification for it? in order to get to a world without violence we have to tolerate Incredible amounts of it, it would seem at the moment. Mm.
1: Yeah, um, thanks very much. Two excellent questions. I mean, I think there's absolutely no question that we live in a world in which war permeates so much in terms of our moral understandings. And that applies, I think, in all parts of the world, whether or not actual conflicts are going on on the ground. And that the idea that somehow people will suddenly decide that, you know, war's terrible and we must never do it, it's not going to just take off Um I think this is where... I think there's two aspects to the sort of democratisation point. One aspect is that actually people may be massively involved in going and looking at poppies, but when it comes to decisions to go to war, they tend to be extremely narrowly confined and have to be sold in a variety of very strong ways uh, by media, thinking of things like you know, Britain going into Iraq in 2003 or whatever. Um, so it's not clear that a great deal of democracy is at work, even if there is an enthusiasm um, for war. So democratising things might at least open up other perspectives for discussion. But the second thing is that if you're, if you're taking this kind of viewpoint of, of, of thinking about moral judgement and, and, and decision, you can't assume that you will fix things or that you are right. You can only argue your corner. Um... And I think in a world in which pacifism in particular is so much belittled as a way of thinking, that at the very least having some people arguing that corner may have some value. Um, But this is one of the reasons why I find Sjöberg's work unconvincing, because she sort of says, well, a war can be just if you have all these things in place. And they're just not in place, and they're not going to be um, in place. Um, We're already in the middle of France. That's absolutely true. And I I think it would be shameful to suggest that, you know, something being said in a lecture theatre in London by a highly privileged person has any direct relevance to what a lot of people are suffering on a daily basis. But war is associated very strongly with suffering. And if you hear people in the refugee camps and so on speaking, they clearly know that something isn't right. And again, it's a matter of adding a voice in terms of the diagnosis of in what ways things aren't right um, and questioning some of the assumptions that may have helped to build into why things go so terribly wrong. Um, But I think in some ways it is always the hardest thing if you're trying to argue for pacifism is that you know you are starting in in a situation that is already violent. So that anything you do is almost certain to have violent effects of some kind or other. So you are in a a world in which you're having to think in terms of the lesser violence rather than of some kind of purist situation in which you're outside of it altogether. I mean, I think when Adams reported back, these young men told me that they had to take a drug before they could do a bayonet charge and how they felt after they did it, or that these young men are going insane. That was a useful thing to throw into the public domain from a theatre of suffering.
0: Okay, um, can we start with uh, this person in blue down here? Hi, um, I'm Jacob. I'm a master student. Um, I try and do IR theory here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I might be butchering some of your work, um, but in one of your articles about, uh, I believe it was Fanon, Schmidt, um, Sorel, you talk about how they legitimate violence through a, a rhetoric and an aesthetic Um, especially in this kind of idea of a tragic figure. And I'm wondering if in the logic of just war, you kind of see a similar logic of this kind of tragic, reluctant, just warrior used to justify violence. Mm -hmm.
4: Please,
1: yeah thanks for that and this was a joint work of mine and liz's actually who's sitting up there so i shouldn't take uh, entire credit for it yeah i mean i think you do see that rhetoric at work you see it in the you see it in all the things surrounding the remembrance stuff that's going on at the moment and you see it in lots of popular representations of, of war and violence and um the just war theorists like mcmahon don't see themselves as indulging in it But it does actually creep in. I mean, there's a very interesting piece by him in which he talks about how if you're thinking about proportionality judgments in terms of war, you have to always start from where you are. So you might at one point have a particular judgment, if you do this and this, it'll work. If it doesn't work, you've got to kind of start from where you are again. The one thing that he thinks you can perhaps bring into the proportionality consideration, as it were, retrospectively is the idea of the redemption of the sacrifice of the just warriors that fought, which seems to me to be very much getting back into that terrain. But even if you're not actually doing that rhetorically, I think what is neglected is the way in which, in order to make sense to ourselves of killing and hurting, we need these kinds of rhetoric. So it's hopeless to try and think about the justice of war as if it can somehow be separated from that.
0: Okay, I think we've got a few people who want to ask questions, so I'm just going to stick with that for the moment. Um, We're going to run out of time shortly, so if you do want to ask questions, stick up your hands. Um, The gentleman with the glasses and the white um, rosette. No, no, this man here.
7: <clears throat> Hi, think you. Yes, I'm Albert Beale. I'm connected with the Peace Pledge Union, who, in fact, have been involved with White Poppies and Alternative Remembrance, such as you've got up there for about 80 years. Not me, but the PPU. Um, <laughs> I think one of the important things that you've, you've addressed is, in a sense, a misconception of what a misconception of what pacifism is. I'm partly it's the linguistic problem of the word pacifity. But also there's all sorts of cultural and and political reasons why it's misjudged as well. And I mean, even some people committed non-violence lead to mis- I mean, like Gandhi saying, it's better to fight than not to do anything sort of thing. But I mean, the point is obviously that, that in many modern situations, well, firstly, parenthetically, Sometimes doing nothing is better than doing the obvious thing. It's less damaging to, 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 to do nothing sometimes. But more importantly, pacifism is an extremely activist worldview. It's an extremely active mentality. I mean, most of my fellow pacifists are extremely militantly activist. And, you know, most of us spend a lot of our time in cells and things. Yeah. And, you know, it, it it is nothing to do with sitting back. Being a pacifist is very much, for me and for many people, an analysis of the world which says there are problems out there which we need to deal with. We happen to rule out on all sorts of logical and pragmatic and philosophical reasons. We rule out one particular form of struggle to solve those problems, i.e. mass force of arms. We don't rule out a thousand and one other tactics. And indeed it would be illogical to sit back and say, tut tut, don't fight unless I'm trying to undermine the causes myself in other ways. So I think Pacifism does have a and I know from you know as a spokesperson for pacifism publicly sometimes that the first re- reaction you always get is but you'd let us all be walked mm-hmm. over or, you know whatever mm-hmm. wouldn't you mm-hmm. and, and so we have an image problem those of us who are pacifists I think
1: <laughs> yeah thanks for that I mean I basically agree with what you just said so I think I won't um, comment any further but I think you're right yeah
0: Okay, um, look, can I just take um, th- two people in a row maybe now. Um, this gentleman's been waiting for some time with the glasses and then this uh, woman in the red shirt and if we can get through that we might take a couple of other ones.
2: Hello, I'm Richard <coughs> Allen. Uh, I'm from, uh, come today from the currencies trading floor of Royal Bank of Scotland, which is in the news today, if anyone has heard it. <laughs> uh, but I've only been there a couple of months, so. it
1: was um,
2: before. <laughs> my question is about trends and how you see the future planning out. And I want to kind of go back a hundred years ago, there were posters. Your country needs you. Uh, the government really had the message and led the, the views of the war uh, from Britain. and the Second World War, radio was very much a medium that was controlled by government. I, I, I witnessed the Falklands-Malvinas conflict, which was everybody I knew watched TV every night to see what had happened. And again, it was very much you were fed what was, you were given. We're in a different age now. The technology that's available—internet, social media, the dark web—the things have changed. You know, we got what happened in the, the revolution in Egypt. You've got recruitment to a caliphate in the Middle East, um, led by moral arguments, supposedly. Um, and I'm just wondering that the, the the means for expressing the ethical and moral views are not just in the hands of governments now, although they're trying to cl- clam down on that. Um, I'm just wondering where do you think things will go in terms of the people mm. being more able to share their views okay. and how that will Im- impact mm. the... Uh, the government who are trying to justify
0: their war. Thanks. If you can just hold that thought, mm-hmm. means of communication, mm-hmm. and if we could just have your question as well, please. Thank you.
6: I've been a public health doctor for
0: a number of years, and I'm now. There's something wrong with that thing. You have to bash it, I think.
6: <laughs> I've been a public health doctor for a number of years, and I'm. Psychology. Comment, and then a question comment is that one reading of social psychology is that it was hugely provoked by the Holocaust and the Second World War. The classic unethical experiments shown us that um, once you invoke identity and obedience, if you, will, you know, if you divide people into groups, they almost inevitably dehumanize the other. Um, I think individualistic and nationalist, That was the comment.
0: The question is: Do you have anything to say about military humanitarian? <laughs> okay,
1: means of communication, humanitarian, okay. humanitarian yeah. actions. Um, all right, there's quite a lot there. I mean, in terms of the communication, I'm, I'm not an expert in in the field of of, of yeah, studying communications and what it's doing. My my general response would be that I think. It's unlikely to make a huge difference in that I think what you'll find is is that um, you'll still get the same kinds of logics and identities emerging. It's just that the ways in which people are learning about each other will be different. So I think you'll get both good and bad outcomes. You'll get jihadi videos being, you know, uh, looked at all over the place and people recruiting through various means for people to engage in violent action. Uh, you'll also get things of phenomena like the Arab Spring, in, in which that was part of enabling populations to come together and resist oppression. I don't think it's likely to go one way or the other. I think both tendencies will remain in place and maybe in some ways offer different opportunities for what you can do with those ideas, but not really make it more likely to be liberatory or, or more likely to be oppressive. Um, with um, military humanitarianism, I mean, that's a huge, huge. Uh, question clearly <coughs> and it covers a huge range so i mean a lot of militaries are so much involved in building uh, you know roads and stuff like that or in peacekeeping as opposed to also in um, you know using soldiers to go in to get rid of people who are seen to be um, a threat to innocent life and so on so it's just massive um what i will say is that i think It's really interesting that this cosmopolitan type of just war theory has come to prominence now, just at the point where a human rights type... Um, justification of the uses of military power has also come to prominence in all the discussions in the 90s and then in the in the 2000s about military humanitarian intervention, responsibility to protect. Um, so I think there is some kind of a sort of elective affinity between those ways of thinking, which does make me somewhat suspicious of um, military humanitarianism. Uh, but it's a huge topic, and I think we need a whole sort of you know session on that really.
0: And- And and I fear that at that point we will have to stop, even though I know there's some people who want to ask questions. Perhaps you can come and speak to our speaker afterwards. I just wanted to say I think we've been very lucky today to have such a rich and subtle analysis offered to us I mean, it's in a great way to start our series. You've, you've dealt with a series of fundamental moral arguments. You've established the gendered nature of the attitudes towards war, which is clearly a very fundamental part of it. And at the same time, you've offered a careful analysis of two important traditions and the way they differ on some of the most basic questions that people confront. So can I ask everyone here to join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Kimberley